background and how you got involved with End, End Hunger New England. So I'm Matthew Martin, and we actually, uh, my wife and I grew up in the Midwest, and we had little tiny kids. They're in high school now, but they were three and five, and we had been married for 13 years. We hadn't gone on vacation for five years because we had two little kids, and they're expensive. And a um, colleague of mine, I was a pastor in Minnesota, up in northern Minnesota where all the lakes are. Um, this pastor was down by the Mayo Clinic. We just met at a conference, and we were talking about school debt and how college is expensive, and then to be a Lutheran pastor, you have to have a seminary, which is a master's degree. Uh, I actually have two master's degrees, so we had all this debt, and we just didn't go anywhere. Well, she happened to be married to a doctor, so they had a bunch of money but no time to go on vacation, but they'd already purchased a vacation, um, so they gave it to us. And I met her at the conference. It was I don't even remember her name at this point. But we went on the trip because we were just eager to finally go on vacation. We were in the Massanutten Mountain Range in Virginia. And my wife uh, woke up one day, probably the third or fourth day that we were there, and she said, we need to move to New England. And I was like, I, I don't even know what states are in New England. Like, we visited yeah. there once, I think. I used to have an aunt that lived in Boston, and we went to Bar Harbor uh, just on a trip um, years and years before. And I was like, why? And she said, I don't know. We just we have to be there. I was like, okay. So when you're a pastor, she was a teacher, um, we just called the bishop and said, hey, we need to move to New England. My wife had this dream, and we need to do that. And the uh, bishop got to know us, and she said, okay, we're going to put you in Quincy. I didn't know what state that was in. <laughs> she told me it was in South, South Shore of Boston. I was like, okay, I know where Boston is. That's in Massachusetts. We uh, made the move. When you're a pastor, it takes about four months to transition. So we moved here, and the very next day, the Haiti earthquake happened. We had been packing meals for five or six years, feeding folks overseas. Every meal we packed always went overseas. And that was the year where almost every meal from America that went overseas went to Haiti because it was like right across the street practically. People felt like they were helping their neighbors and they were really, it was really local even though it was international. So um, we uh, just sprung into action like so many groups across the country. Right. And we started doing packing. Um, I did my ministry. And then we determined uh, 18 months later that we had a real issue with local hunger. So I'd spent probably 20 years doing world hunger but never really yeah. thought of hunger in my town or in my county or in my state. It was always somewhere, when I was growing up, it was in China or Africa. Yeah, somewhere hunger just wasn't local. And we found out that um, there was one out of seven people on our planet was hungry at the time. That was a billion people. It had never hit that threshold before. But we uh, learned that one out of three kids in Maine was hungry and one out of four kids in America was. And that totally changed everything because that was like twice as bad mm. as any given person on the planet. So we shifted and we thought, why don't we do this meal packaging thing full time? Maybe that's why we're here. And um, we had gotten a connection with the pastor in Marshfield who was trying to start a church. They had been, worked for 30 years to start a new Lutheran church on the South Shore. None of them stuck. Well, this pastor had been brokering with some Methodists, some Lutherans, a partnership. And I said, Mark, I'll help you start your church if you help me start this meal packaging thing. And then we can get rolling. And now we've fed over 37 million people. And the church went from 20 people to 24 after my family joined immediately. There's now about 450 people that go to Sanctuary, and they have another location in Plymouth along with the one in Marshfield. So just like all the stars aligned for that to happen, it just took a while for us to figure out why we were actually here. Um, we determined looking back at it that my uh, wife actually had the dream the same week that Mark moved to Marshfield. So we thought, well, maybe there's something here. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and we should just stick with this. Wow. And then, of course, it's expanded wildly, and yeah. um, we're doing all we can to eliminate local hunger. Since the pandemic hit, our national um, 
expression of this has actually shifted to more local. So now 95% of our meals anywhere in America go to the nearest food pantry, backpack program, homeless shelter, wherever they're funded and get packed, they, they stay right around there. Cool. So what's your role within the organization? So uh, there was no role was that was mine when we started. Uh, it was just a national thing that was in central Iowa. If you do a crosshairs of Iowa, there's a little town of 200 people called Union. That's where it was started. Uh, they now have a warehousing in Des Moines because uh, more people know about Des Moines, Iowa. Mm -hmm. And then we, of course, have our warehouse in Pembroke. But when I um, realized that you know hunger was twice as bad for American kids and especially kids in Maine, I contacted the local office because we had been packaging with them for the international. And I said, hey, do you ever do local? Because that's a huge problem. And um, do you ever do anything regionally or is it all out of Iowa? Because I wasn't really looking forward after having lived in Massachusetts for a year and a half to move back to Iowa. Um, Minnesota was fantastic growing up, but we just loved the ocean. So contacted them. They said, you know what? We're just transitioning. We're going to uh, release a couple domestic meals. We now have 10, but they were going to release a couple of them. And they wanted a guinea pig to start the regional program. So that became me. Uh, so there was no regional manager job description. I'm still actually the only person in New England who does this for a living, um, combating local hunger by packaging meals. Wow. Um, but we kind of just created it. I tell my kids and other teenagers all the time that you may do something for a living that you're super passionate about that does not actually exist as a job right now. You might create your own gig. Definitely. And that's what we do. So it's a national organization. Yeah. So my boss and uh, his wife retired 18 years ago, and they meant to sail the world. Uh, he was just 62. I think she might be a little bit younger than him, and that was their plan. But they made the mistake of going with some friends to East Africa because their friends were doctors and nurses doing medical missions. Um, they went because Floyd could build stuff, and Kathy just wanted to see Africa because they lived in central Iowa in a town of 200 people. So they went. Uh, they encountered starvation. They repurposed. Uh, they took the money they were going to spend on a sailboat and made it into food, traded it with some ladies that had some handcrafts. Kathy came back and sold them all. They took the resources. They went back to Africa, started clean water, nutritious food, medical care, education, subsistence agriculture, all these different programs. They now have child sponsorship. All this they've done, they fed 600 million people in their retirement. Uh, and I don't think they ever thought that there would be a regional expression, but there's now six different regions. Um, we opened up one unbelievably during the pandemic last year, and that we had four others besides us prior to that. Uh, but the first year of the pandemic, we did more meals than the other four combined wow. because we had just gotten this head of steam, and we have a warehouse, and we just have a lot of involvement. Um, there was a lot of people in this area that didn't even know this was a thing because we rely on the word of mouth to get people involved in donating, get people to volunteer. Um, we never had warehouse packing before, so that wasn't even a thing. I'd always drive to Sanctuary or drive to, we're going to Caribou, Maine next month and set up the assembly lines. I was at um, Endicott College in Beverly last night. There was never um, like a place to do it. There was always, it was a mobile operation. Yep. So now we've switched everything around to um, make yeah, this so hybrid thing. Yeah, so tell me how the operation works. It's, it's, really, it's really interesting. Yeah, so if you can envision between the two of us, there being two tables, okay. uh, the eight-foot rectangular really light tables, yeah. pop them up. One table would have a funnel and a bunch of bins around it. We have ten kind of meals, so there's four different components mm -hmm. that go into each one, but depending on what you're putting in, like what meal you're making, put in different things. 
then they go down the line, and then my table would be uh, weigh it, seal it, and put it in the box. Okay. So when the pandemic hit, it was perfect for social distancing because people could come. We just kind of spread it out more. We yeah. abstracted one thing off the funnel to allow individual volunteers to come and do something, stuffing the pack in the bag, sending the bag to the funnel part, sending the, ba the um, bags that are through the funnel to the weight sealed box part. So maybe a, a large family would show up, and they'd do the whole assembly line themselves. But if an individual or a couple or a few other people could come, we could still do it by spreading them out okay. uh, to make it work. So, And quite frankly, we used to have a dozen people run an assembly line. We can do it with like six people just as effectively. So the social distancing actually didn't hurt us much. What hurt us, uh, and it didn't hurt us because people were so committed, but we could only have 24 people for like until, well, it was like nine months ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah where we could finally expand, and yeah. that was exactly the time we got our bigger warehouse where we could have now 80 people in there at once, wow. but we were d limited to 24. And initially, it was just trying to get anybody to go. So our first year, we averaged like 13 people. So we were just doing hand over fist meals all the time when anybody would show up. They'd come for three hours, whether they were four years old or 80 years old. They'd stay for that whole length of time. Now that we have more lines, we have usually two-hour shifts instead. You mentioned all this is kind of done via word of mouth. Like, how are people finding you? Is it just, like, this person did it before and then this person's finding you? Like, how, like, how does that work? Well, initially, the only way anybody ever found out about it is they, their organization did an event. They were part of a service club or okay. a church or a school mm -hmm. or something that did an event. We've now worked with 87 different kind of groups. But everybody has different spheres of influence. So you might go to a church that doesn't, and you're like, oh, I have a Girl Scout troop, but, or I go to this group as well, and this would be great. Mm -hmm. uh, my chiropractor now in town here in Marshfield, um, Mike Rogers, wants to get his clients to do it together. So it's just you encountering it in some way. Maybe you're scrolling through Facebook. I know a lot of the people uh, that found out about it when 2020 pandemic hit is they were just at home absorbing all this news, seeing these lines, you know, hunger doubled essentially all these people having to go to the food pantry, they didn't even know this, that was a problem. Then they find out about, well, we had a bunch of news stories done at the yeah. Hall Times and the Patriot Ledger and different people covered it. Uh, Boston 25 came down mm -hmm. and did a story on us. So more and more uh, publicity like that gets people thinking, oh, I've got some money. You know, it's only uh, two bucks to feed six people. Like, I could do that. These are my neighbors. Two bucks? Um, you know, I've got a couple hours. I've got, oh, I know there's a pantry in town, or I, my kid goes to a school that has a backpack program, or I know there's a homeless shelter that they need food. Uh, when there's a storm, the Marshfield Police Department came and got some boxes, so when they had the shelter, uh, they could feed people if they needed a hot meal. So there's various different ways to get it out, but you kind of find out about it on one of those three ways. Either someone asks you to donate my... Uh, daughter's um, bat mitzvah is happening and we're collecting money for this thing. You're like, oh, I can donate. What is that again? And you learn about it. Or you get invited to volunteer or you, you're working at the food pantry and you see our meals. There's very di various different ways that you might encounter it. The important thing is that you then pass it on to the next person and do that Kevin Bacon thing where you're getting it out to the sixth degree so that everyone eventually knows that it's a thing. Are there particular types of groups that are more often, you know, that you're working with? So I initially, being a pastor, I thought it would be a lot of faith groups. Uh, Hingham Hall, that every Christian church, every synagogue in the area gets together for Martin Luther King. So they just fed like eighty or 90,000 people again on that day in January. Um, they do it. We're going to be at the synagogue in Hingham again in May because they have some type of church event where they're doing a bunch of service projects. I thought it would be that 
those groups. Uh, my boss is a Rotarian, so that service club got really involved, but Kiwanis is just coming on. Lions clubs, a lot of them are uh, finding out about it now, so they're getting more involved, and it's kind of in their wheelhouse. Um, but, yeah, I never thought we'd get to almost 100 different kind of groups. I didn't even know there was 100 different kind of groups, really, that would do this. Um, so it's just a matter of who's the most uh, vocal or influential among them. Um, I was a Lutheran pastor. Mark Huber is a Lutheran pastor. Two-thirds of Lutheran churches in New England have done this because that's the network. But if it just can jump to the next one and go viral in another group, then all of a sudden we have all these different kinds. But there's only four out of the top ten that are faith groups. Um, it's various schools are hugely involved. Um, Endicott last night, there's only five schools that have ever done more feeding than them out of like 350 schools. So every different category, uh, businesses, uh, banks, there's three, 400 of them. I mean, it's the variety is just amazing to me that there's that many different kind of people. But it makes sense when you think about spheres of influence and how it jumps from group to group. You mentioned, uh, you said something about it's two dollars to feed a family of six. Six and I was people. Curious, yeah. like, how does that funding work and all that? Yep. So the beauty of the whole thing is that uh, our warehousing, the everything it takes to do the packing, the actual food itself, the getting the meals out, all of that, because we do it on such a gigantic scale, um, makes the cost minimal. The meal we get to people has 21 vitamins and minerals, 11 grams of protein. So it's wicked nutritious. Mm -hmm. It's easy to make. You boil water. It's like Easy Mac or instant oatmeal kind of meals. So it's got all the, the good stuff, but it doesn't have the high price tag because I tell volunteers when you come, someone has to fund the product to, to make it happen and pay for the warehouse and whatever. But when you come and volunteer, you actually double the value of what you're making because we're not having to pay for that. We're not paying for advertising to get the word. It's all word of mouth. So there's so much added value there. If you can compare our mac and cheese, which is still our most popular meal after 10 years, it was one of our original two, now 10 kinds, but people just love the Easy Mac. It's five times as nutritious as Kraft. It ends up being half as expensive to produce because you cut out all those other costs. And then we just do as much. We put uh, everything we can into the meal packaging machine to crank out as many meals as we can. So 2020 happened. We fed 4 million people because we were able to because so many people responded to the need, gave generously gave of their time, and I have like 400 pantries uh, throughout New England that want the meals. We just have to fund and produce as many as we can and get them out and get the word out. Yeah, I was curious, how are you finding pantries and other groups that, you know? That so the food? first model was always that a group, whether it was Sanctuary here in town or whether it was a group in Caribou, Maine that wanted to do it, they would get the money and they would get the people. So they would raise as much as they could, they'd get enough people to pack all that they raised, and then they would reach out to their local communities. So a lot of the networking that happened, particularly to get the pantries, happened initially. Now, because we have the Pembroke Warehouse, and I met somebody there from New Bedford, uh, Pace is an emergency food pantry that um, gets meals and hands them out to people. They picked up, no joke, enough to feed 60,000 people. And he said, this will be gone before we know it. It's like that because of demand down in that part of the state. And it's not far from here. Right. But there's huge demand in some of these areas, you know. I was shocked that 50% of the kids were hungry. This was before the pandemic. Some areas I've encountered 80 or 90% of the kids. Everybody at school gets free and reduced lunch because they just there's so few kids that don't uh, qualify for it, so they just give it to everybody. You've been doing this for a while now. Why is it so special to you? 
So I, as a pastor, did a lot of world hunger work. And I, uh, my other master's degree was in youth ministry because I wanted to put those two, kind of a Reese's peanut butter cup together to inspire kids to service. Um, we did 26 week-long trips, a lot of them missions trips with kids. Uh, teenagers getting the sense that, you know, they live in Hingham and then they go to Juarez and they go, wow, like we're building a home for six people and this is smaller than my room. And I used to complain about how big my room was or I'm sharing a room with my brother. Wow. And they're just completely blown away and it kind of changes their um, trajectory a lot of times for what they want to do with their life because they know compassion is important. They know they're really blessed. They know that whatever. So we did a lot of that. Um, we did 16 years in a row during Lent, which is right before Easter, where we would do a 30-hour famine where kids would actually fast for 30 hours. Most of these kids had never missed a meal. Maybe they fasted before a physical to get blood work done or something, but they wouldn't intentionally miss a meal or, or they always had food. They wouldn't just be missing meals regularly. Um, so I did that with the, the kids. So this is kind of a natural extension of what I was doing in the first place as a pastor. Um, but I don't think anybody should be hungry. I don't think anybody should be homeless, particularly not a five-year-old or an 80-year-old or a veteran. Um, so I just had enough experiences. I was actually homeless in college for three months. So you, um, I grew up in a um, single-parent home, so you sometimes are hungry, you sometimes are cold. Uh, you don't quite have the jacket you need or the yeah. gloves or the hand-me-downs just aren't lasting as well yeah. as you hope. And unfortunately, I had an older brother, so I always got all the hand-me-downs. My little sister got the new stuff. So um, you have enough experiences and you realize that everybody uh, can make a difference in the world, even if it's just by being kind. But if someone's hungry, feed them. If, especially if they're like living in your neighborhood. You don't know who they are. If there's people in your neighborhood going hungry, we need to do something to make sure that everybody, um, this last holiday season, I found out there's like 90 or 100 kids in Marshfield. They're homeless. Kids. And it's like in Marshfield, people can't believe that you're compelled to do something about it when you find out that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of groups that we talk with or I've worked with, it's, you know, the things you don't realize that are going on in the community, the issues that are going on. It is something, it's really eye-opening. Yeah, and unfortunately for kids, a lot of times, you don't choose what home you're born into. So whether you have the best parents in the world and they have all the resources you'd ever need or your mom's a crack addict, it, you're just in a home. Mm -hmm. You should be able to eat, have a safe place to live, mm -hmm. and be able to go to school and make your life better than it is. It doesn't, the accident of birth shouldn't you know, disqualify you from having a fulfilling life. Right. So what are the organization's most urgent needs? So as far as we are concerned, I do now have over 1,200 uh, individuals that volunteer with us regularly. Every time we have an event, there's new people there. There's people that have been there a handful of times. There's somebody that's been there dozens of times. So. It's not like we're looking to turn down volunteers. We want everybody to have this experience, come for a couple hours, even if it's once a year. But we do need funding to be able to have the volunteers come. So if you got a couple bucks or a couple hundred bucks, or I just got a check today for $20,000, wow. you got $20,000, we can get shifts of people. That one donation would allow uh, 35 people four different times throughout the year to come for a couple hours. So that one impact is, you know, 140 people get the experience because someone could write a check for $20,000. Wow. Um, we have always want more pantries to get the meals, but we have 400 different pantries now that want them, and they're always claimed before we can fund and pack them. So we don't really need volunteers or pantries. We really need funds and publicity. And if we have those two things, then we can have more volunteers and more pantries. It's kind of just, you know, 
a rinse and repeat. Yeah. You want to do the, the process, but the whole process starts with a financial donation from an individual or a group or a foundation or a whoever has resources. If Steven Tyler or Steve Carell pop into town and they write a million-dollar check, we'll take it and yeah. pack it until all those meals are packed, get them out all over the region, and then do it again. The next dollar comes in or a million dollars comes in. So our goal ultimately is to feed a million a month. So that would cost uh, about $4 million a year. Mm -hmm. Add two bucks to feed six people. So you just have to do the math and figure out whatever we can have for resources, we're going to turn that into meals to feed hungry bellies. So if someone wants to find out more about End, Hung End Hunger New England, where can they go? Yep. So I'm sure if you just Googled End Hunger New England, you mm -hmm. could find it. But it, the website is super simple. It's two words, End Hunger, and two initials, N-E, for New England. So endhungerne.org. Um, our pastor sanctuary made up this simple website where the first tab is donate, the next tab you can even just scroll down. You don't even have to click tabs. It's volunteer, it's receive, it's promote. So if you want to get involved in one or all four ways, it's just really easily outlined there. Um, we actually have more Facebook followers than our national office does, and they pull from 50 states. We pull from six, so there's a huge amount of involvement. But you can find us on Instagram. Anytime you put end hunger any, you're gonna that's our tag anywhere. It's called the outreach program nationally, okay. but New Englanders really want to know that we're helping feed other people. And as we started, since we were the first region, we were just transitioning, and most of what the home office was doing was still international. Yeah. So people didn't quite get it, so we kind of had to carve out our own niche and say, no, this really is for local pantries. This is really, mm -hmm. we're feeding our neighbors here in New England. Um, so now the national office actually does most of that too, that 95% go to the local, um, but that's, we kind of, got that rolling so people would know that it is for here you're talking about volunteering and stuff like that what's the commitment you know is there you know is there a commitment or something you ask of volunteers so the essential thing is when you walk in whether it's your first time or you've been there a hundred times you got to put a hairnet on and some gloves we've been masking if the kids in school have masks on we wear masks and then you get uh, assigned a job and they're all pretty simple they've all been done by when we did mobile events a lot uh, a one-year-old to a 99 year old at our warehouse, like I said, we've had a four-year-old as the youngest, um, and the uh, oldest is probably in their 80s. But it's just simple jobs, and you figure out kind of what you're um, wanting to do. If you come with a group, um, a lot of people play volleyball in that they rotate the jobs because <laughs> I've been on the funnel for a while. Let me stuff some packs or let me do the weighing, sealing, boxing, whatever. Right. Um, some people get really uh, engaged, so they might uh, sign up to be a monthly donor. They might sign up to sticker the bags that we need to do that every time we get a shipment. They might want to come in uh, early while we're setting up and prep some raisins because that's one of our ingredients that needs a little bit of prepping before we can get it into bins and on the lines. So there's a million different things you can do. I'm just encouraging people to do something <laughs> yeah. to be involved, right. whether it's the production part of the funding or the promotion or getting us connected to pantries. Mm -hmm. Whatever way you can, do what you can do. What people love is you can do it as families. A lot of service projects you can't do with little kids. So we all we both know the nonprofit world can be really challenging. What's the biggest challenge you faced? So for me, a lot of it is just the awareness piece that uh, some people don't get it. Um, obviously, when the pandemic first hit, people were starting to get it because they saw it on the news all the time. Unfortunately, a lot of these st stories aren't covered on the news. Unless it's a really slow news day, and that's kind of frustrating because this would, should be the good stuff people are hearing about that they're just not. Um, so I like to try to educate people about the roller coaster that we've been on with hunger. 
Um, when we started doing this, there was two million people in New England that were hungry. Eight and a half years until the pandemic hit, we'd driven that all the way down to 1.4, which is a huge drop just over that short number of years. But then it skyrocketed. We had more hunger than we had in 400 years. So we're at 2.1. We're now at 1.7. A lot of people are thinking, oh, pandemic seems like it's starting to end. Things must be back to normal. We were at a 20-year low when the pandemic hit. I'm hoping after next year or the year after, we're back down to that. We can get to a 25-year low or 30-year low. But we're still driving hunger down. That's important for people to know. Forget the pandemic. A lot of people don't understand that a $15 an hour minimum wage is not a livable wage in Massachusetts. There's only two states that have more expensive housing than us. So if you're an adult making minimum wage, you're working over 100 hours a week just to afford somewhere to live. Not to own, but just to rent for your family. I worked 100 hours a week for three months in college in the middle there when I was homeless. You can't do that and sustain life. life yeah. You certainly can't know your family. I was 20. I didn't have a wife and kids, so I could do it. You have boundless energy when you're 20. But if you're an adult out of the college age range and trying to do this, you just can't do it. $36 an hour is more reasonable minimum wage for an adult to be able to afford housing in Massachusetts. It's all very particular to where you are. And I think with that level of awareness, if everybody knew that, we would be packing meals hand over fist. Every pantry, these meals are good nutritionally for two years. So every pantry would have these stocked, piled, yeah. so that if we were running out of food, if the food system breaks again, if for whatever reason you don't have stuff, um, this is all non-perishable. You can just pull it out and serve it. You, everybody could have this, and uh, people could eat. And I just think that's so essential. Like, you ate today, right? What if you didn't eat up to this point in the day, three o'clock in the afternoon? You would be hangry. You would, we would you not be having think. this. We would not be recording this podcast. No, you would just or be like be going well. neurotic. And people don't understand that. That's if you've never been hungry. Imagine then that you can't feed your children. That just takes it to a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. um, when I was 16, I almost died. I had a ruptured appendix, but we didn't have medical coverage. In Massachusetts now, if you don't have resources, they give you medical coverage for free. You, everybody should have that. Well, everybody should have food and housing and all those other basic things as well. I almost died. I was 16. My kids are that age right now. I can't imagine their life being over because we have medical coverage. I mean, is it ridiculous? So um, just that level of awareness, if it continues to, to unfurl like it has been for 11 years, 11 years from now, everybody should know this is an issue or hopefully maybe it's not an issue anymore and we've taken care of everybody has all the food they need. It's available. If anybody needs it ever, it's here for you. Um, that's the kind of society I want to live in. I've noticed the South Shore, we're a part of the Chamber of Commerce. Someone donated so that we could be a part of the Chamber. There's a lot of people that really care about each other on the South Shore. There's no reason we shouldn't just be feeding everybody, have all those uh, things available for folks. Habitat's doing great work with housing. We should just be doing that in every facet of everyone's life so they can just have a kind of a baseline to, to start life from, whether they're five or 85. On the flip side of that, what's been the most like rewarding thing or the thing that you, you feel has been most successful? So I was overwhelmed uh, spring of 2020. I almost said last spring because it feels like this has all it been does. one year. It really does. But we were there uh, seven to seven. We were doing three-hour shifts. We had four back-to-back-to-back-to-back uh, -to -back -to -back -to -back shifts every single day for 19 straight days. We had that much funding. We had that many people kind of falling over themselves to get involved. It, the response was... When the pandemic first hit, we thought hung hunger like quadrupled. 
um, the South Shore and uh, the state of New Hampshire were the worst off hit in the uh, entire region. To see people respond around here, to give generously, um, all told, eight and a half years into the thing, we had two people that gave, uh, individuals that had the wherewithal to write a $10,000 check to donate, to, to give. During the pandemic, we just got our sixth one, and it wasn't 10,000 this time, it was 20. So there's people with resources, with compassionate hearts that say, we should do this. And I was honestly just, I don't know how I lasted 12-hour days. <laughs> we were doing something called the End Hunger Game, so I was actually doing about two hours of emails every night. I slept, I got up again, I felt like I was in college, wow. but I wasn't 20 anymore. Um, but the number of pallets that we rushed off to the Greater Boston Food Bank and all these different places, um, this space that we never really used for packaging before just became a packaging site. Um, it's kind of like you just, we're going to clear off these tables and we're going to make this happen. It just like uh, happened. And it, there's no reason it should have. People stepped up. Some of the lady created a sign-up genius, a uh, lady from Duxbury. I live like a mile or two from her. Uh, we're on either side of the town lines. I didn't even know she was a person. And then all of a sudden, she's like, roll up her sleeves, helping wow. me make this thing happen. All the different folks that were there. Uh, there was one guy from Plymouth, retired, was doing all this volunteer work, and all of a sudden could do none of it. Read about us in the Hall Times. He literally came daily. He was there at 6.45 every morning working with me. He's now on our advisory team. I mean, just the level of don't know a thing about this to just a few years later, wholeheartedly involved in making awesome. it happen. That was the most exciting thing for me. Because that's, I'm all in. It's just nice to see a bunch of other people all in. So is there something that, about the organization that may surprise people that don't know? Well, when I share the story about my boss and his wife repurposing and feeding 600 million people, everybody's head almost explodes because they can't believe like that's a thing. My boss just turned 80, and he's still doing everything he can to end hunger, now locally, primarily. Um, they went to Tanzania, Kenya, area of East Africa, every four months, forever, until the pandemic hit. I mean, they're, what, 18 years into this thing, so for 16 years, yeah. three times a year, they went in their retirement years, and they're, you know, setting up a school and feeding people. I mean, it's clean water projects, things that are essential. People they didn't even know. I mean, they were like business people in Iowa. Uh, he formed the first plastic recycling business in all of North America, so wildly successful as a business person, but was a Rotarian, so service above self, and kind of transitioned into this life of service. That floors people when they, they understand that I have two master's degrees. I have still $99,000 in school loans, but I don't do that anymore. I wadded those up and said, hey, we got something else. My wife used to be a teacher, has a master's degree. You need a master's degree in Massachusetts to be a teacher. We moved to Quincy. She couldn't find a teaching job, so she started to write. She's now published her children's book and a novel. She's joined by two other artists that have this gallery at our warehouse space. It's unbelievable. Like I said, this unfurling and the unique stories. One of the artists is Rich Noise from town here. He's a videographer. He's a photographer. He's um, basically allowing us to sell his stuff, and we get the proceeds to feed people. Same thing with my wife's books. Um, there's one lady that from uh, Plymouth used to be an art teacher in Kingston. She became the mobile art lady, like I'm the meal packaging guy, because she knows this is a thing you can do. Um, she's one of our artists, so they're all showcasing their work on the 11th of next month uh, in the evening, just so people get like, there's super talented, generous people that are giving what they can to this cause, and more probably than they can, but they just really want everybody to be able to eat. They want everybody to feel cared for. They want 
um, uh, like I said, to live in a society and a community at the South Shore that really looks out for each other in whatever way we can. Um, and it, it just goes to every aspect of your life. So whether you're packing meals with us to feed hungry kids, fantastic. But then you go out into your life and you can be that kind of compassionate presence, that kind type of person that makes the situation better, that helps people out, and that unfurls. Then we're in business. It's not just everybody gets to eat and has a place to stay in medical care. We've got a really great place to be. Everybody wants to flood. You know, it's not just the Patriots win all the time. It's like we have a great community. That's what we want Marshfield and Pembroke and Duxbury and Hingham. You know, all these South Shore communities, there's 23 of them. They should all be these bastions of hope, mm -hmm. uh, these lighthouse for, for people that are in troubled times. And quite frankly, we've all been in troubled times for about two years now. So if we can have that type of community, whatever comes up in the future, we're going to be able to tackle it together because we know we can do this thing. We've been doing it in different ways, and we can just continue to make it happen where it's needed. Well, thanks. thank you so much for doing this. This was great. Yeah, I know. It's exciting. I can't believe this is my life, quite frankly, but um, it's super fulfilling. And a lot of people, um, when they come, they get it. Our little bumper sticker slogan is ending hunger, enriching lives. And I think people come expecting to end hunger, but they don't realize how enriched their lives are, they're thinking we're enriching the lives of the people we're feeding. And they don't get like, when you're eating barbecue ribs, you're going to get some on you. You know, they get this enrichment in their lives just by doing this. They get to meet really cool people from the South Shore that are doing this together that they never would know otherwise.